If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye. Come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Bro, we must be doing something right if we can keep get, getting guests to come talk to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, definitely. It's it's good. It's good because I think people get tired of uh, hearing me and you talk. I hope not. They're, they're subscribed. That would mean they're going to unsubscribe, but hopefully the okay well, okay well, okay well, okay well maybe they're just tired of hearing you talk but without further ado <laughs> we want to welcome our special guest today uh rebecca del schneider she is um a assistant professor of biology uh, rebecca uh is was raised in halifax nova scotia she obtained a bachelor of science honors with co-op in microbiology and immunology, immunology at Dalhousie University. She worked at the National Microbiology Laboratory and immunate, immune, immunovaccine technology <laughs> incorporated. Rebecca graduated with a PhD in the Department of Immunology from the University of Manitoba in 2016. And this was pretty interesting. Uh, she was a student leader, uh, one research and presentations awards and is one of manitoba's future 40 under 40. welcome yeah that's me thanks for having me here uh, did, I, did i pronounce that right immuno vaccine did i immuno vaccine yes immuno vaccine okay cool there's a, yeah, there's a well, lot of syllables gotta yes yes work through um it, right? oh did I, did I miss anything rebecca that you want to let the listeners know that i might have missed in your bio no i, I think you highlighted the main point so yeah, I'm an assistant professor at Providence University College, which is in Otterburn, Manitoba. Uh, and I've been there for the past five years. I'm entering my sixth year. Uh, and our science program is new, but it's growing. And it's been uh, a great place to work. Uh, it still is a great place to work. And we have some fantastic students, a fantastic program. And that is what I do day to day. Nice, nice. And and so we wanted to... Uh talk about your article which is which i found we found very fascinating on vaccine hesitancy um and you, and you took uh, somewhat of a christian approach can you for the listeners who haven't read it uh can you let us can you let them know um what it's about and we'll make sure to put it in the show notes page Oh, great. Yeah, no, those are great questions. Uh, so I'll kind of summarize maybe what led me to write the article and mm -hmm. and give uh, listeners kind of the gist. Uh, so I've been learning about vaccines for many years now as an immunology graduate and as someone who kind of still teaches immunology and still teaches microbiology and human disease, it's something that comes across in my classes often. Uh, and so I started researching vaccine hesitancy perhaps a bit more purposefully probably two years ago. I gave a small talk at my institution about some of the reasons for vaccine hesitancy. And then, of course, with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, uh, vaccine hesitancy certainly became a really important topic uh, since then. Uh, and so that is why I decided to write this paper, just talking about vaccine hesitancy from a Christian perspective. The title of it is Vaccine Hesitancy, 
Christian reasons and responses. Uh, certainly among Christians, uh, scientists tend to be less represented. Uh, certainly I know a lot of Christian scientists, um, but they may not always speak up in the church setting. And so sometimes scientific topics uh, like vaccines uh, can be misunderstood or just never really discussed Ever. And so I wrote this mm -hmm. paper to, to try to bring that topic into the Christian sphere more so. Uh, and so in the article, it was just published um, earlier this year in 2020 in the journal Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith. That's a journal that's put on by the ASA and CSCA, which are organizations that bring science and faith together. And so it's a really wonderful journal to read through. If you're interested in any sort of topic on science and faith, uh, there's a lot for you to read here. Uh, and so my article goes through some of the reasons for vaccine hesitancy, especially some of the reasons that may be more specific to Christian groups. Uh, and then also some of the responses uh, just to address some of these reasons uh, and perhaps perhaps promote vaccine confidence. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's definitely... Um you know, the Christian science, not just in this realm, but the Christian science or, or Christian, you know, let's say uh, secular science perspective, some always seems to have, you know, some opportunity for conflict. I only say that because I think about, uh, I remember being really interested in sort of the young earth conversation. And, you know, when you start to look at it from a scientific perspective, there's, there's much more to it than just simply I'm pro-evolution or I'm pro-God created the earth in six days. Um, and, and so I just see a parallel to what you were saying about some of the, the Christian sort of, well, we don't, we're not going to talk about that, or we're just going to, you know, like hesitancy because we need to hold on to our faith as opposed to wrestle with, uh, so I wonder if you could speak to some, of you know, what's your experience in sort of navigating that and, and opening people's mind to even, you know, thinking about, well, we don't have to have this, um, I don't know, bifurcation is necessarily the right word, but sort of one or the other approach. Yeah, that's, those are some great comments um, because I certainly have seen a lot of, of Christian uh, groups that just really avoid science. And it's sad because science is really cool. <laughs> uh, and I think the more science and faith conversations we have, the better our understanding of science will be, but also the stronger our faith will be. Uh, and we don't always have to have an answer. I think just being brave about entering into discussions is really important and not sweeping things under the rug because that can lead to people leaving the church when mm -hmm. perhaps they encounter a church that um, doesn't just doesn't want to talk about these sorts of things. I think just having um, those open dialogues is, is really important and giving people a safe space where they can perhaps voice their concerns or try to work through some of these tough topics. Uh, and I and I want to acknowledge that a lot of these topics are really tough. They're complex, multifaceted. There, there's no, you know, easy conclusion that we can arrive to. But that's why we still have so many scholars that research sci these science and faith topics is because there's a lot to them. Um, and I think the more conversations we have, conversations like this one and others, uh, will just lead us in really respectful directions so that we don't have those bifurcations in the church, that people feel welcome to talk about these things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, for me, um, science is not my thing, and I find it uh, kind of intimidating. And so uh, you as a professor, like, what would be like a good starting point for um, the novice a person who feels intimidated or uncomfortable navigating 
the scientific space? What, what advice could you hmm. give us? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, resources. I guess I, I could recommend some resources come to mind right off the hop. Uh, so if you're interested in science and faith topics, really broadly speaking, there are some great websites out there. I think of the BioLogos website that is from more of an evolutionary point of view, um, but they do pre present diverse views on some other topics. Um, mm -hmm. And I know the ASA and the CICA have informative websites with resources attached to them as well. Uh, if we wanted to look at kind of specifically the topic of vaccines, I promoted mm -hmm. a, a lot the website um, christiansandthevaccine.com. Okay. Uh, it has some fabulous resources. Uh, a theologian, uh, I believe his name is Curtis Chang. I haven't looked at the videos in a little while. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Curtis Chang. Uh, and he interviews a variety of people. Some of them are scientists, some of them are researchers or doctors, and some of them aren't. And they work in other fields, but perhaps interact with this COVID-19 pandemic in different ways. And so I think those videos are just really informative because you don't need a science background to understand. And uh, like he has almost a dozen videos um, on this website right now. And so I think this is a good starting point for someone who doesn't have a science background or and isn't comfortable kind of reading scientific papers and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I guess for Christians and, you know, um, yes, there's a science aspect um, and then there's the theological aspect. Now, I personally don't, don't believe that there is necessarily a difference. Um, between theology and science. Well, theology is a science, but um, you know, God created you know the world, and and all truth is God's truth. Uh, but I find that um, either way, Christians are divided on this issue. And you know, I've seen articles that talk about uh, like uh, Hamilton's COVID nineteen vaccination program, uh, prior, how it there's a separation between Christians in the church and segregation. It's kind of, it almost feels like a Jim Crow kind of feel where not just in the church, but even in the family where, you know, uncle, uncle Curtis can't come over because he's not vaccinated or, um, you know, one con one part of the congregation sits at the top and one sits at the bottom. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you feel about the separation in light of the, vaccine hesitancy between people um, of the faith and even in the family? Yeah, that, that's a great comment, a uh, question. Uh, Providence actually recently put on an event where we were talking about vaccines, restrictions in the church. And a pastor that we invited to be in our panel said so wisely that uh, the other person on the other side of that debate or that issue is not your enemy. And so mm -hmm. for those mm -hmm. for those that are vaccinated, the unvaccinated are not your enemy. And for those that are not vaccinated, so to the converse is true. Those that are vaccinated are not your enemy. And I think, unfortunately, we've kind of created that dichotomy in this pandemic where the vaccinated look at those that aren't and they look down on them. And then the unvaccinated do the same for those that are vaccinated. And we really need to tear that apart because mm -hmm. that's not what the body of Christ looks like. Um, and so I, I would just remind us to all like remember who and what the enemy is. Uh, and it's not each other. It's not our vaccination status. Uh, I think we need to be looking at a much larger, more important 
enemies that are attacking mm-hmm. us and trying to bring us away from God, away from our faith, away from our unity. Uh, we can still be a church that has some people vaccinated and some people not vaccinated. Um, I've had so many people email me over the last few months since my article has come out and since I've talked about it a little bit and just kind of asked me how they should deal with perhaps their vaccinated or their unvaccinated family members or church mm-hmm, members or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and through all of it, we just need to remember to love each other. And we need to also remember that I think we all have different risk tolerances. And this is a pandemic that is killing people and that is making people sick. And so we need to perhaps be gracious with one another because some of us are quite anxious. And I think it, it worse, their anxiety is worsened perhaps when they confront someone who is insistent that they need to enter their home or, or come give them a hug because... I think some people just aren't comfortable with that yet, and we need to give some people time. Uh, and so hopefully we can just move forward in a loving and gracious manner and not discriminate against anyone based on their vaccination status or based on their past past COVID infections or, or any of their behaviors. Mm-hmm. But we just need to try to love each other a bit better, I think. Yeah, it's it's you know, I think it's a somewhat of a cultural thing that we're allowing to infiltrate the church in the sense that like I've you know, whether it be the mask conversation, whether it be, you know, the vaccine conversation, there's there's become this very like divisiveness that you know, I I have experience where I went to Florida for a month last year and I would say, you know, the number of people wearing masks was in the 90 plus percent I I love I love to say this comment because it was my experience. The level of like vitriol towards those that weren't wearing a mask was vastly different than what I've experienced, what like seen here. Like just this, you know, sort of polarization regarding, oh, well, because it's the government mandate, it's sort at least that's the way I've sort of seen it. And I'm more libertarian leaning, so maybe I'm predisposed to see it that way. But with Florida versus here, I would say I saw the same percentage of people wearing masks. But the the sort of grace towards someone choosing to do it differently when it wasn't a government mandate, um, I, at least from my experience, has seemed to filter into we've allowed that cultural trend to show up in the church. Um, and I really appreciate sort of what you're saying in terms of like, you know, you use the word love, and I think in the, in the proper context, and you know, you've seen people say, oh, if you're gonna love your neighbor, you have to get vaccinated, and I'm like. Okay, it's a, it's a little bit deeper than that, and and I think the way you've described it sort of per, sort of finds the the middle ground for how you know Christian love should be played out. So I just want to you know acknowledge that and and show appreciation. For that. Yeah, and I'll just add. I mean, I, I certainly I, I've received my two doses of a COVID nineteen vaccine. I still wear my mask, even though my provincial health um, authorities have told me that it's safe to not do so all the time, uh, just because I want to be as protected as I can be. Um, and so I've made those choices for myself, and I encourage other people that ask me about those choices to do the same, especially if the risk is. It's still out there. We're still in this pandemic. And so vaccines and masking and physical distancing are such important ways to really limit infection, limit transmission, and to keep us all healthy. Uh, But I certainly don't jump to conclusions if I see someone without a mask or if I hear that someone isn't vaccinated, because there are a lot of reasons for people to uh, perhaps be exempt from those policies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I, my friend of mine was telling me at his church 
that um so there's there's a person at this uh, my friend's church who was talking who's saying there was a member uh who was out evangelizing church members um to get vaccinated or <laughs> to not get vaccinated either way uh, there was a it was very divisive and almost making it um an either or proposition and and I'm sure I'm sure I'm, I'm not a prophet um but I'm sure every church has a person who is um vigilant in regards to getting um their 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 side represented in the church and kind of like coaxing people to say hey hey you know like you know the mo- you, know, you should you should be getting vaccinated or you know did you get the jab right or you know did you get the jab or and and using these kind of names and 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 I found it was very divisive and I would even just urge I don't know maybe church leaders like you can't tell the you can't tell the government what to do necessarily but you can kind of talk to your elders and your leaders and I think um pastors and elders should be um addressing this issue and telling people to you know calm down in a sense yeah exactly we just don't want to make enemies out of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't condemn anyone that is trying to talk about the ve- the benefits of vaccination. <laughs> I probably wouldn't condemn them because I talk about that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think doing it in a, in a non-confrontational way, doing it uh, casually and with love and empathy for the other person, uh, I think is important. Uh, I'm not standing outside the doors of my church saying to everyone who enters in, like I'm not handing them a vaccination pamphlet, uh, but I try to make myself uh, an approachable person so that if anyone wants to enter into the conversations I'm having, hopefully they feel safe to do so. And hopefully they feel safe to ask the questions maybe that they have. Uh, And if I don't have the answers, I can point them to a, a professional who does. Uh, and so I think just having safe spaces and welcoming places for all is important moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, we've, we've been talking, you know, we, we sort of moved on from the vaccine hesitancy stuff. And, and as I said, we'll put in your, your article in the show notes page um, or, or, and, or your paper. I don't know what the, it does have a lot of sources. So paper might be the better terminology. Um, I, you know, I think for me, at least, when I read through um, those uh, comments, or, or sorry, the 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 you know, five, I think it was five um, you know reasons and and responses. I think probably the most uh, divisive one would be regarding the or, or maybe divisive is not the right word, but the most um, at least significant argument would be the abortion component of that. Um, right. Yep. And and you know, I have a um, an article from Nebraska Medicine. Uh, that was, you know, just sort of had asked the question you asked, we answered is the title of it. Do the COVID-19 vaccines contain aborted fetal cells? Um, And I thought they did a really good sort of nuance with regards to mentioning that, um, you know, uh, both Pfizer and Moderna don't have it, but they used aborted fetal cells in confirmation tests. And so, you know, to some extent, um, I think your answer focused on the part about, you know, the shot themselves don't have uh, aborted fetal cells, um, but then there's still a component of the development that would be utilizing, let's say, that technology um, or, or utilizing some of those uh, 
I think derivatives from those cells is probably a, a better way of using it. So I wonder if you could speak to it a bit as well as, you know, where uh, where you would fall on that and, and what you would tell people who are just, you know, thinking about that issue. Right. And you're, you're certainly right to say that this is one of the reasons that I think is most or, or most means the most to, to some mm-hmm. Christian groups, I would say, um, and is probably something that Christians care about perhaps more than some other people groups uh, and perhaps even some other faiths. Mm-hmm. And so it is true. And, and like you said, there is a lot of nuance. And so perhaps I'll spend a couple of minutes talking about this because there's so many pieces to understand, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so indeed, many years ago, uh, scientists derived some cells from at least two uh, elective abortions. Uh, and some of those cells are from the lung. I believe some of the other ones were from a kidney, perhaps. Um, and there are uh, brief papers published about uh, the origin of those cell lines, but it's important to know that they're not uh, new or in any way fresh fetal cells, but those cells were then used and passaged in the lab to create what we call a cell line. And a cell line is just a petri dish full of cells that grows a lot better than any cells directly from um, a body would do in the in the lab. <laughs> uh, and so having a cell line that grows really well is incredibly helpful for producing things like viruses and producing some other things in the lab, proteins and whatnot, because it can do so really efficiently. And so that is why those cell lines were developed in the first place. We are not developing cell lines that way anymore. Uh, But I try to argue in my paper that even if you think that development was wrong in the past, perhaps we can consider if there's some way to make, to use those for good moving forward. And so we're not doing those processes anymore. Should we just leave those cell lines in a freezer somewhere and not touch them ever again? Or could we actually consider ways that they can actually contribute positively to to understanding health and development and disease. And I certainly would lean towards the latter. I think the way that I understand redemption spiritually uh, and redemption in everyday life is that good can come from bad um, as long as we stop doing that bad or do our best to stop doing that bad. Uh, And so that is my approach to some of these really hot and really contentious ethical topics uh, in science and faith. And I don't mean to dismiss it in any way. It is so significant and there's so many components to take into consideration. But when I look at the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, I know that the production of those vaccines didn't make use of any cell lines derived from aborted fetal tissues. Yes, some of their other testing, some of their confirmation testing did. And I suppose some of those confirmation tests did contribute to the success of those vaccines indirectly. Um, But in my mind, it's a very loose connection. And it's something that I think we can keep talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, For some other vaccines like the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson, they make use of cell lines derived from aborted fetal tissues more directly. And so perhaps for some people, um, like because we have a choice of what vaccine we receive nowadays, especially we have several approved uh, you, I think you can look at those options and see some that have a more direct tie to cell lines derived from aborted fetal tissues and those that have an indirect tie. And we could probably spend all day on that topic. <laughs> it is, yeah. 
it's significant. Yeah, yeah no, no, definitely. Um, I think about uh, the passage in, in Romans 14, Romans 14, 13 and 23, where it talks about like, don't be a stumbling block to your brother. And as it relates to conscience, right? He t- he's making the argument between the, the stronger Christian, the weaker Christian. And essentially, um, and if any listeners are listening and I'm getting this wrong, <laughs> please let me know. <laughs> but, um, but being a stumbling block is to your brother is telling your brother to do something that he doesn't feel like he can do. Meat offered to idols or whatever the case may be, like the example. Go against um, traditionally, you know, pardon. Go against their conscience. Go so. against their conscience, right? So, so being a stumbling block to your brother is telling, trying to get him to get them to do something that they don't feel comfortable doing, and then that's where we um, we see in uh, Romans fourteen twenty three, and it says, "But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating." is not from faith for whatever whatever does not proceed from faith is sin and so i the point i'm making is that it still comes back to a person's conscience um and not being a stumbling block to your brother to force him to do something him or her to do something they don't feel comfortable doing but to your point um about the process and how the vaccine's being made i think from a christian perspective i'm thinking um it's funny I'm using this term and we're talking about this, uh, the genetic fallacy, right? So we're talking about genetics and, and, and vaccines, and, but the genetic fallacy argues, which is Aaron logic, which, is, which argues that just because something has a bad origin um, doesn't mean it, it, it's necessarily a bad outcome. So, so we judge, we don't necessarily, as Christians, we don't necessarily judge things on the origin, but of the outcome, Romans 14, 14. Because nothing is evil in and of itself. Kind of like the point you just made, Rebecca, about like the vaccine may have some questionable ways how it's been brought, been put together, but ultimately it's it's serving a purpose um, to help people. And if they feel, and if, I guess if they feel um, their conscience and, and and it's in good faith, then um, then yeah, then 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 they go and do that, and that's up to them. Yeah, I think that that's some great some great things to add. Um, and I would also just kind of comment a little bit on the the talk of kind of going against your conscience or, you know, how, how you feel personally about a decision that you make. Uh, and certainly I know for myself and a lot of the other scientists and health professionals that I talk to and that I ha- work with now or have worked with in the past, like I'll, none of us wish ill on the general population. We all want each other to be happy and healthy and for so many people like myself that have worked with vaccines and that really understands the immunology, the science of the immune system, uh, we know that vaccines can help. Uh, and so uh, we wouldn't want anyone to feel bad about receiving a vaccine. And so hopefully if anyone uh, really is, is, is struggling with that, then perhaps they can reach out to people, their, their family doctor or other healthcare professionals or scientists to just talk about it. Um, maybe they'll change their mind, maybe they won't, but at least you're trying to work through those feelings and kind of make more sense of them. I know some people just feel uncomfortable with vaccines, especially these vaccines in this pandemic, because they were made uh, in record time. Uh, And a lot of people are worried about the safety of these new vaccines because some of them were made with newer messenger mRNA technologies. 
and as someone who has seen science progress over time and seen, maybe to go back to the example of genetics, the fact that we're sequencing genomes faster than we ever have for less money than we ever have, I just see progress being made everywhere. And I think the progress we're making in vaccine development is no different. Of course, we're going to make vaccines faster than we ever have because there's more scientists now than we ever have. And there's certainly more need for vaccines now than we've had in past years where there's been no pandemic. And the messenger RNA technology is not that new. It's been around for many years. And now finally, we have a new pathogen uh, where this technology uh, can really be, be used well. And I'm really excited in particular for these new mRNA vaccines, just because they're so simple and sophisticated. I just get really excited about how we can use that technology to combat other infectious diseases and perhaps other non-infectious diseases that are still plaguing people in Canada and people around the world. I think there's a lot of good they can do. So I I definitely have a question about the development uh, that I think uh, it relates to the timeline stuff that I think is is, is good. I did want to touch back uh, just briefly with regards to the, um, you know, sort of abor- abortion piece. I think, you know, what you had said earlier about creating a space for conversation, right? Like the idea that like you're, from your perspective, you can use the ones that don't use the fetal cell line, let's say, or even the ones that maybe do with good conscience, you know, to to engage someone, to educate them, to maybe change their conscience. Um, I think that's what I sort of took was what you were talking about before when you said to create an opportunity to have these conversations. Um, that and so the other part of this, though, I think um, that's you know I think about uh, Albert Moeller talking about in vitro for years about there's we need to be consistent if we are going to hold such a position, right? If someone's position was I don't want to have you know, any vaccine that has anything to do with a fetal cell line and until they, or aborted fetal cell line, of course, um, you know, until they use something different, whether it be in development or not. Okay. If that's your position from a conscious perspective, fine. Um, and the reason I bring up in vitro is because when Albert Moeller was talking about it, you know, he mentions you need to be making sure you're not just having, you know, 10 cells and then intentionally uh, or impregnating 10 and then keeping only, you know, the one. And basically you're, you're having an abortion and there's a lack of consistency there. So I just, you know, I thought there's, there's a lot of nuance to that, uh, you know, abortion conversation that, that I think uh, a lot of people don't talk about, but also I did really, I really appreciate sort of the, um, the stuff you had said earlier that really is, you know, not what Darnell's saying, where Darnell's like, you know, you shouldn't be trying to convince someone to go against their conscience, but maybe engage them in the conversation about their conscience. Well, well, no, no, I'm no, hold on, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm all for um, hurting people's consciences. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, I, no I, I'm saying you're not. You're, you're saying don't tell people to go against their conscience. You're well, saying tell people to engage them on, on the. Yeah, topic. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Um. So. I, unless you have anything to add on that, I'll, I'll, I will move on to a question about the timeline. But I just thought, you know, there is so much to that topic that that this was a good consistency piece that's worth adding. And maybe just the one other thing I'll add is that, like you've said, and like we've been saying, um, these conversations are just really important. And I hope that churches are finding ways to create those welcoming spaces where we can have these conversations because this is the only way where our our congregations, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our our family will be able to 
kind of move forward and and wrestle with these topics. Uh, and I'll remind like all the church leaders potentially that are listening that you're not alone, that you don't have to feel like this is all on your shoulders. You can reach out to faculty members at institutions. You can reach out to your fellow pastors. You can reach out to scientists and health professionals and and other other people are there to help you. You don't have to shoulder this all on your own. I know for myself, we've had several church leaders reach out to some of the faculty members at Providence. Um, and we can act like a sounding board if you just want to bounce ideas off of us or if you need us to help you find certain sources. Like we're just well-versed in, you know, academic database mm -hmm. searching. And so we can, we can help you find some documents that could help. So reach out. Yeah, I, I think the frustration like i said before um you know not everybody uh is literate when it comes to science or or vaccine terminology and and genetics but i think a lot of this stuff comes from um the the rules and regulations the stipulations put in by the government that give special privileges to privileges and incentives uh, but incentives to get vaccinated and privileges to those who are vaccinated um you know like vaccine passports and, and and so forth even people i heard those situations where you know you, people can't use um the amenities in their condo um unless they're vaccinated and so that's where the frustration comes from and that's and that's why i was kind of like well this seems like a a jim crow a jim crow kind of feel um there's a there's a water fountain for vaccinated and a water fountain for non-vaccinated and that's where the frustration comes from i think with with most people in and in the church yeah, and there's so many conversations about how we can move forward uh, in in the best way. <laughs> there, there's, I'm sure there's no plan that will appease everyone, mm -hmm. unfortunately. No, uh, no, they and, won't. And so I, like, I, I understand the government's point of view and that they are trying to keep their taxpayers safe, and the we can put more vaccinated people in a room and have a lower risk than if we put a whole bunch of unvaccinated people into a room. And so I understand, like, my husband and I are big fans of the CFL, and so I understand why the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are permitting vaccinated fans into their stadium and asking their unvaccinated fans to watch from home. Uh, mm. Just because they can pack the stadium with vaccinated people and, and help to support their club and their programs, whereas they'd have to limit capacity if they uh, allowed unvaccinated people in because we still have cases in our city and we still have this pandemic going on. And so it, it it's just such a tricky uh, issue. I there, There's no easy way through it, unfortunately. And unfortunately, different governments are taking different, making different decisions. They assess risk by, by different criteria. Uh, and individuals assess risk, their own personal risk by different criteria. And so uh, I, I just, I, we unfortunately have to leave those decisions with our elected government officials. And we have to do our best as citizens to respect their authority, respect the fact that they see a lot more data than the average person, uh, and just hope that they're doing all they can to keep all of us safe. So, um, you know, when I think that sort of transitions well uh, to, you know, the the concerns let's say about timeline and efficacy and all that stuff regarding regarding the vaccines um and and so you know i think uh from what i recall you know let's say a traditional viral vector vaccine would be a five to seven year time horizon uh for development um and 
you know, that when I look at, you know, what's gone on now, you know, I've heard a lot of people make the claim that they have gone through this, the, the, let's say the approval process, all the necessary steps of the approval process. Now that might be true, but it clearly seems like that approval process is different in, in whether it be just simply timeline, whether it be overlapping of some things happening at the same time. Can you speak to, you know, what's similar to what's different about, you know, a, a traditional uh, vaccines? And, and again, I could be totally butchering this, but I think about like, oh, you start with mouse models, then you move to ferret models because they have, you know, the, I think it's the ASU 82 receptor. That's Ace similar two, to, yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and stuff like, you know, so, and then it would go to, you know, so there's different phases that, you know, what's similar and what's different about these approvals um, that, that, you know, whether that's what mm-hmm. that statement is true, that it's gone through them all. But I guess for me, well, clearly the timeline's different. So what's similar, what's different? Yeah, I, I will, I'll start off by saying that no step has been skipped and so some of the, the stages that you mentioned, like the mouse models, and so usually we would start off with in vitro studies and test tubes and cell lines, then move to in vivo models, animal models, so like mice or ferrets or uh, macaques, uh, uh, monkeys, uh, and then uh, move. If, this, if the data is positive, then we can move into in vivo studies in humans and clinical trials. And then clinical trials have a couple phases. Phase one and two, those early phases tend to assess safety. And then phase three assesses safety and efficacy. Is our product safe? And is it working the way we hypothesize it will? Uh, and all of those steps have been taken with these vaccines. Yes, they have gone on faster. Those animal models and those clinical trials have taken significantly less time than they have in past years and in past decades because, well, for so many reasons, we have Mm -hmm. abundant granting support. So we have the finances in place to have huge um, clinical trial. uh, uh, What's a good word for it? Clinical trial. groups, I suppose, just all of the supervisors, all of the recruiters, all of the medical professionals that are needed to conduct clinical trials. Uh, if a company is has a successful candidate that they want to move into clinical trials, there is funding available for that. And so those competitions for those grants, for those financial supports, those decisions are being made faster. The timeline is shorter because of the threat and the risk that is present. Uh, and so in a non-pandemic year, these would definitely take longer because those vaccines would be competing with a lot of other scientific proposals and ideas. But nowadays, governments like the Government of Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, they have prioritized COVID. And so if someone is studying something related to this pandemic, to the virus itself, making a vaccine or looking at perhaps some of the social supports or other things that we're providing to people, those studies are prioritized over others. And in other years, that priority wouldn't exist. But it makes sense that the priority exists because the pandemic is uh, certainly a significant hazard. Uh, And I I would also say that it's happening faster than ever before because we're collaborating better. Of course, there's more scientists around nowadays because our population globally just keeps increasing and increasing. We have more scientists than we ever have. We've had, we have better communications than we ever had before. We have better uh, financial sources, um, as I said before. There are just so many reasons why this progress has happened on a bit of a faster timeline. 
and I know that that may make people nervous, but for myself, when I read through the scientific studies, I see no, skip, no steps that were skipped. I see no red flags. Uh, I'm very confident in the safety of the vaccines that have been approved so far, and that's why I elected to, to receive those doses. Uh, and if someone were to kind of ask questions about those studies to me, like I'm happy to pass them along. The fantastic thing about them is that they're all open source. Scientists mm -hmm. actually pay more money so that everyone can read their article uh, because it's really important. Uh, and so I, I, yeah, I think the data sharing, the open source science, those are just, there's so many factors that have made this timeline so short. And I'm thankful for it because honestly, they've saved so many lives. Yeah, you know, it's a it's an interesting time. I think, um, you know, I think the open source concept is is definitely uh, more valuable. Um, you know, I sort of have an attitude that I think some of the let's say economic situation of the industry has, gives me reason for pause, and that's you know not specific. Let's just let's say the the um, the regulatory uh, scenario. And so what I'm speaking about to some extent is, you know, the idea that, uh, and I'm obviously Canada is a bit of a more difficult to assess. So I'm using the U S here uh, just because our medical realm is a little bit more socialized. And so, you know, you don't see the same level. What I'm thinking about is, you know, the fact that you have, you know, sometimes government agency, um, those that develop some of the technology can then receive uh, royalties. As, as a response of developing that product, which to some extent makes sense. But then, you know, for me as an econ economist, I go, okay, you're skewing the incentives because now they have an incentive to approve their own product. Um, and, and I just bring that up to say, you know, when we look at all that this has gone on right now with moving so quickly, you know, how would we evaluate or, or what would be the flags that we're looking for to say, hey, wait a second, like, let's use the worst example we know of with regards to vaccines. The, I think it's the 1980s swine flu rollout that, that you know, essentially got, let's say, botched for simplicity. What would we be looking for, you know, as an outsider um, to say, you know, maybe the regulatory bodies are more hesitant because of, you know, all of the political stuff around this and everything that might make them more hesitant. Again, go back to what I said about, I look at it, some of the incentives in the industry can be, um, you know, skewed, not to say someone's, you know, totally corrupt. That's not the point. The point is that you've, you've shifted incentives slightly. So, um, you know, for like the, if again, I go back to the 1980s scenario, what would you know you as a scientist be looking for in the data to go oh okay maybe we need to take a step back and, and question something hmm yeah those are some good questions um and it actually brings up some recent current events to mind like you mentioned the swine flu influenza vaccine from way back but there's actually more recent cases of in the vaccine history where things haven't gone super smooth um, i'm actually thinking of uh, one of the, er I think the earliest or one of the earliest rotavirus vaccines. Uh, so rotavirus is an intestinal pathogen. It can cause diarrhea and can actually increase um, childhood disease and cause death, mortality. Um, and one of the first versions of that, that vaccine actually caused a really rare event ca called uh, interception, something like that, an intestinal blockage uh, that was actually quite hazardous to infants. It happened in really rare cases, uh, but because they caught it within the first year, they took that vaccine off the market and developed better alternatives. Uh, and so I think surveillance is one thing that can give us 
good confidence in vaccines. So we are catching those really, really rare events. And we I'm sure we've been hearing about some of those rare events in the media, uh, like the myocarditis events and the young males, especially who receive the mRNA vaccines like the Pfizer and Moderna or the uh, strange blood clots of thrombosis that kind of middle-aged individuals, it seems to be a little bit more risky for women, uh, those side effects that some received after the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Um, and so it, surveillance is something that can give us confidence in vaccines, actually catching those events, knowing the rate at which they're occurring and taking products off the market that um, have side effects that actually turn out to be perhaps uh, too worrying, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. In our history, as I said, we took off that rotavirus vaccine from the market. Um, and so the fact that we are taking products off the market that are not safe should give you confidence that anything that is still on the market right now uh, has proven to be quite safe. So, so survey oh, sorry. Sorry, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to add in some other features um, or some other reasons to be perhaps vaccine confident or confident in the pharmaceuticals that are approved. Um, so surveillance is really important. Is the country performing adequate surveillance? Are we catching those rare side effects and are they indeed really rare or are they starting to become more common than we expected? Um, but there's also a few other reasons that I would um, state as well. So. Uh, I would look at where the data is published. Is it published in respected peer-reviewed scientific journals? Is that information transparent, accessible? Can scientists and everyone across the board read it on their own? Um, can we see some of the information that those regulatory health authorities are assessing? Uh, and certainly we see that in this pandemic, the transparency, all of the open source science, as I said, uh, is, is really encouraging. Mm -hmm. And then I would also, uh, yeah, I was thinking of another reason to add in there, but perhaps I'll think about that a little bit more before I share it. And I think you maybe had something that you wanted to ask. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I would say, you know, I, I, you know, when, when we were looking at your article, just the topic of, of vaccine hesitancy, you know, I was going to, you know, my, I would say my attitude regarding, um, let's say public health in general has, I've been very, um, I've become less confident in our public health agencies and for, for a broad spectrum of reasons, um, you know, not to, to get into like being overly critical. Um, but you, you know, one, a couple of examples that come to my mind, um, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you may or may not have heard about this and I'll put it in the show notes page, but the, for example, the who changing their definition of herd immunity, pulling out, you know, to only include vaccines. Now they've, they've revised it again and added, you know, vaccines back. So I can sort of show three versions of it. Um, you know, for the listener who's who's curious what I'm talking about, but you know that that's sort of an example where you're going, wait a second, why did you just take out regular immunity or or natural immunity? Because from our perspective, um, you know, vaccines are trying to mimic the natural immunity, and so you know it, it was peculiar. Um, another example, you know, you spoke about data. Well, with emergency youth authorization, there was there's there's a ability for government to require increased tracking and they actually opted not to do that. And so, you know, little things like that 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 sort of go, well, wait a second. And and I think probably for me the most predominant example regardless of let's say the truth of the statements regarding masks, the fact that, you know, the statements came out saying, "Oh, don't you don't need to use masks." And then they turned around and said, "Oh, actually I was lying because I wanted you to behave a certain way." you know as opposed to being transparent and saying look 
we need to save this for these people and actually you know educating as opposed to trying to control behavior i think those are the things that i see as like just going well wait a second you want me to trust you but the behavior doesn't convey i should trust you regardless of yeah you might have had good motivations and so yeah, I just wonder if you could speak to some of that, what you've seen, what, you know, whether uh, maybe obviously, you know, speaking out against some of that stuff might not be, you know, something you want to do. But I just wonder if you could speak to some of that as to, I mean, I get it at the same time, because we're in an environment where things are moving quickly. And, and to some extent, the public health agencies are trying to do what they think is best. Um, but also from a public confidence perspective, um, I know a lot of people have said, you know, the public health agencies are going to have to repair their reputations after this. Yeah, that's an interesting. Those are an interesting series of comments. Um, I'll, I'll definitely admit that we have learned lessons about science communication, about health communication in this pandemic. Uh, are there times when we could have done better? No doubt. Uh, and are we trying to do the best that we can given the emergency situation? I'm, I'm sure people were. Uh, I think of uh, the chief uh, medical professional in Canada, Dr. Teresa Tam, and how she started off this pandemic saying, uh, no, we don't uh, necessarily should suggest that everyone wear a mask. And like you said, for some of those reasons about reserving uh, important stock for the healthcare professionals that need them the most. Um, and I remember listening to one of our earliest interviews and it ended off with a statement about how she will amend those recommendations when they receive more data and when they have more meetings to talk through all of those papers that have been published in past years and how that information can translate to the situation we currently find ourselves in. Um, and I, I just, I feel a little bit bad for some of those professionals because they had to make some really big decisions in a very short period of time. And could they have chosen some words better? I'm sure. Could they have given us a bit more of their reasoning and been a little bit more transparent? I think so. Um, but the fact that they were updating their recommendations and trying to improve them over time gives me confidence. I know for myself, when I looked at a lot of the math studies that were done before the pandemic and those that have been done during the pandemic, uh, it's still not super strong science. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't have a ton of randomized control trials to say that masks will protect us really definitely. Uh, we just have a lot, a lot of small studies. Uh, and some larger studies that are just coming out more recently that are showing that mask places have less spread than unmasked places. Um, and so I understand why people question and doubt that information, but when we're trying to assess risk and health professionals and scientific professionals like myself do this all the time, like when we're opening a new lab or when we're doing a new experiment or when we're advising guidelines, we assess risk. All We look at all the different risks that could mm -hmm take place and we do our best to mitigate those risks to limit in this case of the pandemic to limit transmission to limit infection and we had some evidence to say that masks could help maybe they would only help mildly sometimes perhaps it could help and uh, be really strong measures of protection uh, the degree of their efficacy is debatable but I think a lot of people said that, well, we use masks in hospital, we use masks in our science labs. They're, we know that in our situations, they are incredible, 
incredibly important parts of our protective equipment. And maybe there's ways that we can translate that into the community, say with fabric masks or with disposable masks, and try to confer some of that uh, protection to them as well. But it's something that we're continually improving and, and trying to understand better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy that now we understand masks a little bit better than we did a year or two or more ago. And I'm sure we'll understand them even better in a year or more to come. And I think mm-hmm. that those changes, those updates are progress. We should expect that to happen. If we weren't making those updates, we weren't making those changes, I would be really skeptical because, mm-hmm. you know, the situation is always changing. So we need to always change our guidelines and our policies. In terms of the change in the definition of herd immunity, uh, certainly herd immunity could be achieved by kind of natural wild infection or by uh, vaccination or a mix of the two. Certainly mm-hmm. as an immunologist, we understand herd immunity to along, to be along those lines. And just for context, the, the, the historical definition, and so like, again, I'm using uh, Web Archive. If you look November 5th, exactly what you just said, right? A potential combination of the two. Uh, just as a general concept. And then it was like November 24th, essentially the natural got dropped. And now the newer one is, is you know, it used to be a paragraph. Now it's like six paragraphs. Um, but that's where, you know, dropping the concept of natural immunity just goes, what are we doing here? Are you, Like, it seems politically driven with regards to, you know, the timing. Hey, the vaccines are about to be rolled out. And, oh, we just happened to in- exclude the natural immunity conversation. Um, and so it just, you know, especially I would say to you, you know, the thing that that sort of makes me, um, I, I, I'm actually using, um, I don't know if you were familiar with um, Dr. Human Norchasm. He he put sort of a hypothesis out there. I think sometimes the hypotheses get overly criticized as you're crazy as opposed, but he has experience sort of with the minority harm question, and he had said, hey, you know what? Right now we're doing something we've never done, which is vaccinate those who had natural immunity. And there's a potential that maybe we're creating minority harm here. And, you know, to, that's where, you know, again, I look at that, that dropping of the, the natural immunity component from that and saying, you know, again, go back to the vaccine passport type, you know, the, the, the bifurcation of, of uh, you know, society without saying, well, actually, wait, if you've had natural immunity and we can show that it's robust, let's say through an antibody test, why isn't that included in the conversation? Yeah, those are all good points. And I there's a couple of studies that have come to mind. I don't have the references in front of me, but I can send them off to you if you want to look, take a look at them that have shown benefits to those that have acquired COVID-19, um, have been infected, um, and then have been vaccinated. And their antibody responses have been better than just those that are prior to vaccination. Uh, and so we are seeing some benefits of vaccinating those that have been infected in the past. And so I understand where those guidelines come from because the benefit seems clear to me. Um, uh, really, the stronger the response, the, the safer that person will be. Uh, and like you said, um, perhaps we will be changing guidelines moving forward and maybe accepting antibody tests uh, or other immunological tests, like neutralizing antibody tests, uh, to see if those that have been infected but not vaccinated uh, still seem to have a robust immune response. Um, perhaps we will see guidelines come out like that in the future, but uh, those tests aren't super routine just yet, unlike the PCR tests that diagnose 
um, uh, an infection. And so perhaps as we see those tests become more routine and more accessible, maybe they'll be more adopted. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end of, of your time, and I, I definitely want to respect that. Um, I will wonder if you could speak to um, variants. And this is, you know, a question that I think um, one side of the conversation seems to be getting shut down with like going, okay, you're crazy. But, you know, from a conceptual perspective, um, I've sort of heard both sides, right? Like the, the mainstream view is, oh, the unvaccinated are creating the variants because, and, and conceptually, obviously, if the unvaccinated are getting sick, they're spreading the disease, the likelihood of a variant spreading is in that population um, and been being created. The, you know, you've got people like Brett Weinstein and, and others who are, you know, let's say scientifically inclined that, that are asking the question, well, we also have the potential where because these vaccines were focused on um, reducing severe symptoms, that while we know that, there, and, and obviously the Delta variant is a prime example where there, it is spreading in, in, to some extent in the vaccinated, there is a evolutionary pressure that potentially the vaccinated person who gets sick is more likely to create the vaccine-evading variant. And, and so not just obviously it would have to spread. It could get created, but then if it doesn't spread, then it doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it just seems like that side of the conversation is like, no, you're crazy. We're not going to talk about that as opposed to like, you know, again, go back to what I was saying with regards to like, let's, you know, the, the, the stuff that the public health agencies are doing is rather than engage and challenge and evaluate that, it's sort of being shut down and we're not going to talk about it. Yeah, and I, I certainly don't want to see anyone shut down. I don't want to see anyone censored. Uh, I really don't think that's happening if anyone is presenting you know, valid questions and really intellectual arguments. Uh, I, I, I am happy to see when just complete false misinformation is shut down because that is just really damaging and it leads people astray. And as a Christian who seeks truth, uh, I'm, I'm happy to see misinformation uh, removed from social media platforms and whatnot. Um, but we, when, when we actually focus on the topic that you mentioned, just about uh, variants, uh, and so certainly whenever a virus has an opportunity to replicate, there is a chance for a mutation to happen. And there's a chance for that mutation or that mutant virus to keep mutating, maybe acquire a couple mutations, um, some of the enzymes that viruses use aren't the greatest. They don't fact check. Uh, so <laughs> mutations happen more rapidly than, say, in some of our mammalian cells. And so when that those mutations happen in viruses, sometimes you, those mutations don't confer any advantage, but sometimes they do. And maybe that virus can replicate better, or maybe it can be transmitted better. And certainly that's what we see with Delta in that the average person infected with the Delta variant has a much higher viral load, um, can get more sick, uh, and certainly can transmit that infection easier to others. An important thing to note is that all of the variants of concern that are currently taking over the world, like Alpha and Beta and Delta from the UK and from South Africa and from India, um, they all arose before the vaccines we have now. Uh, And so when the pandemic was running completely uncontrolled, no vaccination policies in place, um, only physical distancing and masking um, is when we saw these variants arise. And I'm confident that now that cases 
are decreasing thanks to our vaccination policies in areas like my province in Manitoba, where our vaccination rate um, of one dose is now over 80%. We have a pretty flat curve right now. I know a lot of people are anticipating a fourth wave like we see elsewhere, but we're really hoping that our vaccination policies are going to keep that fourth wave as small as possible. And if there's fewer infections, then there's fewer risk of new variants arising and really outsmarting our vaccines. Uh, and in terms of like the sort of natural selection that you mentioned, I just, I love that theory. I love talking about natural selection. And it does play a role when we talk about infectious disease. But of course, because the vaccine decreases our symptoms, we have some really strong evidence to suggest that it is decreasing transmission as well. And so even if a vaccinated individual, one in 20 vaccinated individuals may still get sick, may still catch the coronavirus, um, they could even possibly end up in hospital in, in some less common situations, but they're still less likely to pass it on. Um, and I know of a lot of big studies that are trying to ask some of those questions now as well. Um, will we need a third dose down the road? I know that that's a hot topic in the U.S. Um, certainly, if certainly if some of these variants um, take hold at a greater degree than what they already are, then we may. And now that there's so many states, so many big cities uh, in our neighbor down south that only have 30% of their population vaccinated. Uh, and so there's really such low levels of protection there that the virus can replicate um, quite a bit without our immune system uh, armed to take it out. So there is a lot of nuance there. I really enjoy that immunology and the biology of natural selection. So I could talk about that for a long time, but I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm we'll confident. have to have you back uh, with maybe when the, you know, things continue to develop and, and maybe there's more, yeah. more for that conversation. And it will know. develop. I'm yes. feeling it will develop. Yep. <laughs> I mean, this, this pandemic isn't going away tomorrow. We know that for sure. Uh, and right. so hopefully we can do everything we can to protect our, to protect ourselves this fall, this winter, especially as schools open uh, and our children go back to their normal modes of education. Um, I'm a mother, and so I really think about my children and, and how best I can protect them and how best I can also protect the other children and the other individuals in my community that may be at a risk. We know that children are at an increased risk of the Delta variant, especially and the Delta variant is a lot of the cases, what we're seeing in Canada now. And so I would just encourage all of us to keep talking about this. And I thank you guys for dedicating one of your episodes to these topics because it's important to think and talk about it and get all of this information out in the open in a non-threatening way so that we can really try to do our best to stay safe. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you for coming on and, and, and sharing your two cents with us. Thank you for having me. For, for the listener, uh, if they want to engage with, you know, you or your content, you know, reach out to you, what would be sort of the best place to, to find, you know, whether it be more of your content? I mean, I'll, I'll make sure to put a couple of your, I think, uh, I think the first video you had referenced, I have the link for that, as well as a coronavirus version of the, essentially two versions of the talk related to your paper. Um, I have links for that. But, but if, you know, somebody wants to reach out to you or, or, you know, see more of what you do, where would be the best place for them to find that? Yeah, I'm happy to provide my email address. Uh, so it's my first name, Rebecca dot 
my last name, Dale Schneider, at prov.ca, and I can provide that to you both as hosts. Which <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes page for those that <laughs> are trying to going to try to spell that out. Uh, it'll be much right. easier to find it there. So. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do my best to respond to kind of non-work related emails as fast as I can. But um, I just have to acknowledge that I am going into an incredibly busy time at work mm-hmm. <laughs> with classes starting back up in just a couple of weeks in September. And so I may not be able to reply to you the same day or mm-hmm. the same week, but hopefully within <laughs> uh, a week or two is my time frame. Awesome. Th- thank you again. We, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, we really do. Thank you. Um, it's definitely good to have um, another perspective other than Joel and I. Yeah, oh, especially somebody who's got the expertise as we're, you know, sort of trying not to Google excessively and find the wrong content, right? Now speak for yourself, Joel. Yes, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure to talk with you both, Joel and Darnell. It's nice to meet you. All right, nice to meet you too. Thank you for coming. Okay, bye. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.